Hello, salam, and, salam. <laughs> and welcome to another episode of the Ajam podcast. I'm your host, Rustin, and today we're here with Huma Gupta. Hi, Huma. Hi, Rustin. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You're very excited to get started, so let's, let's do this. <laughs> so Huma Gupta is the, well, first of all, congratulations on finishing your PhD. Thank you so much. <laughs> And you just completed your PhD at the Aga Khan Program for Islamic Architecture at MIT. That's correct, yes. And you are also going to be the new Humanities Research Fellow in the Arab world at NYU Abu Dhabi, yes? That's correct. So we're here to talk to you about your recent article, and by recent I mean 2017, <laughs> recent in my mind, called The Restoration of Darul Aman Palace in Kabul, Afghanistan, which was published by Thresholds Journal, which was an MIT publication. So, I mean, reason why I'm attracted to this is because I'm generally interested in urbanism and how nostalgia works and how people remember the past. So I assume most of our listeners are not familiar with this palace, but what is this palace? Where is it? And why are you interested in it? Thank you, Rustin. I actually came across this palace in 2011 when I first went to Afghanistan. I was a 25-year-old looking for a sense of purpose and a little bit of adventure. And in my first month there, a friend of mine just took me to Daruluman Palace, which is laying in ruins about five kilometers outside of Kabul city on this elevated hill. It's a very impressive structure guarded by army officers at all times. And we walked into this place and it felt like a haunted ruin. I mean, it's a very beautiful space. It feels like it has, even though it's less than 100 years old, but it felt like it had thousands of years of history. And as you walk in, you see all of this graffiti inscribed on the wall. There's the plaster is falling. There's this beautiful balustrade and, and staircase leading up. There's this beautiful dome that is exposed with all the metal skeletal structure um, overlooking the actual city of Kabul from a distance. It's a very beautiful place. And I was really taken by these Yadgari, like this uh, beautiful inscriptions on the wall. People had made drawings, they had written poetry, dedicating it to their past lovers. And I became just very curious about the place. So when I left Afghanistan in 2013 to start my PhD, I was still remembering this palace and thinking about what has happened to it. And in 2016, Ashraf Ghani, who's the current president of Afghanistan, decided to embark on a restoration scheme. So this palace was built initially in the early 1900s by Amrullah Khan, who was the king at the time. He was part of this generation of, for those of our listeners who are familiar, of young Turks and young Afghans who were interested in constitutionalism. His uh, father-in-law was Mahmoud Tarzi, who's one of these kind of intellectuals of this time who was running an important newspaper in Afghanistan. And his daughter, Soraya, who's the queen at the time, was this very progressive, beautiful, enlightened queen, kind of like a Queen Rania or something, you know, <laughs> in the present moment, was one of these figures. And they, you know, look like this effete, young, educated, progressive couple and were very interested because he's part of that generation where the Duran line gets established. 
The Duran line is the the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And so he's in this moment where he's trying to establish sort of Afghan independence from British suzerainty. And he is also trying to kind of imagine what the Afghan state is. He is also someone who is very enamored by Ataturk in Turkey and looking at these kind of like top-down secular reforms and is trying to emulate that for Afghanistan. And part of his desire to kind of, he promulgated the first constitution, you know, got the postal service for Afghanistan. He was interested in electrification of the cities, of having a railroad. He was interested in all these large infrastructure projects, but he also wanted to build a new capital. And part of it, again, comparing it to the history of Turkey that people might be more familiar with, is that when Adishar comes into power, he wants to build a new capital because all of the traditional elites are in Istanbul. And Amanullah as well wanted to get away from the traditional elites who are based in the city of Kabul and trying to kind of tabla rasa, create a new identity for the Afghan state. And that meant making a new capital city. And in order to do this, as Afghanistan becomes independent, they're forging diplomatic relations with other countries. And much to the chagrin of Great Britain, who wanted to keep Afghanistan in its orbit, Afghan diplomats were traveling to the Soviet Union, they were traveling to Germany, and Germany in this interwar period between World War I and World War II was really starved for cash and trying to, you know, they were interested in building the railway in Iraq, and they were also interested in getting their hands on some lucrative contracts in Afghanistan. So he goes to the Technical University in Charlottenburg, and he's actually, it's very interesting, Amanullah Khan gets a uh, honorary doctorate in engineering. And so I like to call him the engineer king. By honorary, did he do any of the work? <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> but he was hiring so many of their graduates to come well, to... <laughs> I guess that deserves some credit then. <laughs> yeah. So I, instead of the philosopher king, he was this like engineer king. So he goes there and he just basically starts recruiting all of this at the time, cutting edge urban planning talent. These were people like Walter Harton, who had studied with, for those of you who are familiar with this early like urbanist history with Camilo Sita, with Baumeister, these forerunners of urban planning in the early 20th century. And a little tidbit for the listeners, you might be familiar with Albert Speer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a more an infamous character. An infamous character who is most known for his association with Hitler, unfortunately. But he was incidentally hired by Amanullah to come to Afghanistan. But as Speer writes in his autobiography, he was never able to take up that spot because Amanullah in 1928 gets deposed. Wait, so before we continue... I just want to ask, what did Kabul look like in this period? What was its relationship to the rest of the country as the capital? And in general, this new urban plan, what did it promise? What was it supposed to look like? Kabul, as maybe some readers can imagine, was at this time kind of had a dense urban fabric, narrow lanes, more winding streets. It wasn't always easy for automobiles and kind of like the future transportation mediums to navigate through the city. And so there was a desire to build a modern capital that was more in tune with 
European models of urbanization that Amanullah Khan had been seeing on his travels abroad with his wife, Exactly, exactly. So it's in this moment, actually, that this carte chart configuration is introduced, which basically just means kind of a quadrangular, you know, planning framework. Think Manhattan, you know, that's a carte chart like configuration. However, this proposed capital that was supposed to be five kilometers outside and was supposed to attract a different kind of modern Afghan citizen. That was going to wear European suits as Amanullah Khan liked his Afghan men to wear and the women uh, would not be veiled, would kind of present not only just a spatial, but also a cultural break from the old traditional elites who were in the center of the city. But of course, we have to remember that most of Afghanistan is rural in this period. Most of the population does not live in the city. And so... The proposed traditional break that Amanullah wanted was even more radical compared to how people were living in the provinces. And it was in some ways alienating. Today in Kabul, you can see that, for instance, in what is a very popular Hazara neighborhood in a different location. But old Kabul still remains the same. It never got fully planned out the way Amanullah had imagined. Only some of the new suburbs have. So according to your article, this palace, the Darul Aman, was recently reconstructed. You said the restoration finished in 2019. Can you talk a little bit about why it was reconstructed and why was there such a fanfare about it? So I think our listeners should know that Amanullah Khan, despite the promise of his leadership, only was in power for less than 10 years. In 1928, he's deposed by a provincial tribal rebellion that takes over the capital. And he then goes into exile, making a brief stop, of course, to hug Ataturk in Turkey, who is expressing his condolences and basically tells him that, you know, if you were going to do these radical reforms, well, radical is not the right word, these liberal reforms, um, you you should have had a strong military to back you up. (laughs) But that year, when he's deposed his charge d'affaires in London, Sirdar Muhammad Yunus Khan, he makes a statement in the press, which I'd like to just share with our listeners. He says, I feel sure that a hundred years hence, a monument will be erected at Kabul, the capital, to King Amanullah, to commemorate his patriotism and great reforms for which my countrymen were, perhaps, at the time of their introduction, not quite prepared. The reason this quote is important is that makes us think that Amanullah was this phenomenal reformist leader, but the Afghan people were just too conservative and traditional and just not ready to, you know, end parda or to accept the education of women. And this is a narrative that has plagued Afghan history to the present day. And I think it's a very damaging narrative because it displaces all of the, I would say, fault of the lack of quote-unquote modernization or development in Afghanistan to something like religious conservatism, which is simply not the case. I find this very fascinating because there's so many parallels with, with other parts of the world, right? Where in Iran, for example, or I mean, this idea of the paternalistic uh, ruler, benevolent ruler who is dragging his people, kicking and screaming into modernity. And yeah, um, yeah I mean, and it causes, as you, as we'll talk about, a type of nostalgia for something that is more problematic than a lot of people seem to realize. 
Precisely. And what I try to kind of point to in a humble critique of this restoration and this kind of deification of Amrullah Khan is that there are legitimate grievances for people in the provinces. There are legitimate concerns. You have in this period's forced conscription, whose sons are going off to join the military, right? You have increased taxation, whose money, whose crops are being taken to fund all of these magnificent urban planning schemes and electrification schemes in the capital, whose Daughters are being taken out of the household to join schools, which is a wonderful thing. But basically, we could read this as a sort of like disciplining of the population, the imposition of Western dress codes. Who can afford to buy suits and dress like this effete, like Western man who wants to be registered with the use of identity cards or taskeras, which means that you have greater and greater surveillance by the government in your private life? So these legitimate grievances were completely kind of swept aside with a sort of wholesale accusation that these quote-unquote ignorant priestly classes were just rejecting these reforms on the basis that they were interested in ending parda or introducing female education or interested in ending child marriage and polygamy. While these are all wonderful things, the economic part of reforms or redistribution of wealth was not being considered. Only these sort of social liberal policies, which of course Amanullah's Western counterparts were in favor of. That brings us to the rebellion and the deposition of the king. And obviously there is this nostalgia, as you described, a nostalgic desire for this restoration. Who's funding this restoration? Why is it important? And who benefits from this narrative? So I would say that actually one of the champions of Amanullah's legacy in the contemporary moment is the president, Ashraf Ghani, who even before he became president has been sort of fixated, you might even call obsessed with Amanullah and this palace. In 2016, he allocated $16.5 million for this restoration. So the money is really coming in this moment but prior to that, a few years earlier, his daughter, Mariam Rani, is actually a pretty famous visual artist based in New York City. And curiously, Ashraf and Mariam did a collaboration for a quinquennial art exhibition called Documenta that happens in Castle, Germany every five years. And this time, this Documenta was happening both in Castle, Germany and in Bamiyan in Afghanistan. And so for this, they did this collaborative project on Darul Aman, using it as a space from which to tell a non-linear history of Afghanistan, a history of Afghanistan that is like always like starting to begin and then it gets interrupted by revolution. It gets interrupted by the Soviets. It gets interrupted by the civil war. It gets interrupted by the Taliban. It gets interrupted by occupation. And there's just like recursive loops as they describe it. This is what I mean by nostalgic desire. There is this like this future that could have been, but was not. And so everything is always moving back to this time. But Darulman Palace, even before Ghani, is being memorialized by all kinds of ideologically different regimes. It appears on various currency notes in Afghanistan under the Soviets. It appears under the monarchy. Like everyone, for whatever reason, wants to appropriate the image of Darul Aman and 
ideologically claim it as their own. And that's what's happening in the present moment too. So while I, in some ways, agree with Ashraf and Maryam Ghani that somehow the history of Afghanistan is inscribed in the history of this palace, I think that we need to think more critically about what aspects of this history needs to be memorialized or thought about and how it needs to be contextualized just to give a little bit of sense of what has happened with this palace, all the multiple afterlives, if you will. Even though it was designed to hold the parliament, it never got to do this. Instead, it was the Ministry of Public Works. It served as the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Justice and the Supreme Court, the General Staff Building, the Ministry of Defense. It's also operated as a medical school for Kabul University. It was a place to store raisins. It was a refugee camp. And it was a temporary housing settlement for resettled nomads. That is quite an eclectic bunch (laughs) of responsibilities. So, I mean, this is a phenomenal space. And it's also been a military base that has been used because of its elevated position to uh, both shoot at others and to be shot at. So it's riddled with these bullet holes. This place has a lot of character and history. So I think when Rani decides to restore it, you have a very polarized response. Half the people are celebrating it because it's like, yes, Afghanistan reconstruction. We're going to make this symbol. Incidentally, the new parliament that was funded by the Indian government it was actually built right across the street from Darulaman Palace, which is a very strange kind of mirrored juxtaposition of this new Indian parliament and the parliament that never could have been. Anyways, it promoted this very polarized response because Afghanistan today is a very youthful country. And most of the young people may not have any lived memory of this complex history. And so what happens with a total restoration, which that means in this case, as the restorers claim that they're going to restore this palace stone by stone, exactly the way it used to be when it was first built. And they're very proudly claiming that they're only using Afghan materials from all over the country. And they're only using like Afghan labor. And they're hiring scores of female engineers who are then sent across the television and media network. Every newspaper article or television report about this restoration features these female engineers because it's trying to, again, make the similar claim that Aminullah Khan was that if we appear to be progressive in the context of gender, then all of the other ways in which our policies are not economically redistributive, let's say, that can kind of be hidden or swept under the rug. And so these women are actually not the heads of this project. They're not the main designers, but they are going on television shows and they're saying things like, I'm an Afghan first, a woman second, Kishwari man, like Abad Shawa, you know, like they're like, it's this huge developmental patriotic narrative. And I think a lot of people want to celebrate this. And certainly it's a good thing that people are getting jobs, that female engineers are being showcased, that the materials are coming from Afghanistan itself. But all of this history when this palace was restored in August of this year, has been erased completely. All of that incredible graffiti, all of those aspects of the palace that were crumbling, that have suffered through wars, this was an opportunity, I think, to not make some sort of tourist site 
some sort of museum to Amanullah's legacy, but actually to talk about the complexity of Afghanistan's history and to partially restore parts of it, but also to showcase the complex experiences and ideologically varied regimes that have occupied Afghanistan in different moments and the different types of political imaginations that have been housed in this palace, not just the political imagination of a guy 90 years ago and a guy today. So for me, this restoration project is is a sort of erasure that is being enacted. Yeah. Immediately, I think about like Soviet graffiti in the Reichstag, right? So like, from what I understand, I have never been inside that building, but as opposed to full restoration after the end of World War II in Berlin, they decided to keep some of this graffiti as, I guess, a testament to this very dark period of German history. So my question for you is like, well, I guess this is more of a design and maybe a curation element, but as you mentioned, keeping some of these periods partially unrestored or restored at different times, obviously you see a benefit in that, but how would that go about? Like, what would you like to see? I think, interestingly enough, the answer is already or was already present in the renderings that the Ministry of Urban Development Affairs had put out for this palace. Most of the renderings, like it looked like Disneyland, you know, these like fountains and green spaces around the palace. And it looked like this beautiful tourist destination. And in a city like Kabul that doesn't have a lot of green spaces, I mean, there's like Bagh Babur or there is Bagh Zanana, like the women's garden, but there aren't that many green spaces. I understand that this is a welcome site in a more desolate landscape. However, in one rendering, they show this kind of transition between the ruins to this uh, Disneyland (laughs) restoration. And in between, there's this like weird amorphous matrix-like grid. And I think I point to that because, not that it's a great rendering, but because it's already showing how you can restore the palace in a way that shows multiple temporalities, multiple ideologies, where there isn't one deterministic narrative. The problem with this type of nostalgia is that it's deeply deterministic, that today somehow we have realized the project that was started 100 years ago, and that is not true. And it's also completely hegemonic. There are many, many dreams that the space inhabited many, many different visions for Afghanistan that have been articulated in the last hundred years. And so this palace could have been, and still can be, I would say, a place to explore those different spaces. Instead, the National Archives in Afghanistan are contributing materials from Amrullah Khan's reign. So again, it's just become a museum to this person instead of a testament to the complex history of Afghanistan. Puma, before you go, can you expand a little bit more on this ideological dissonance that you're referring to? Sure. I I think I'd like to talk about my friend and colleague's work, Ali Karimi, who wrote this fantastic article called Street Fights, the Commodification of Place Names in Post-Taliban Kabul City. So everyone, please check it out if you can. But he was talking about how street names are used as bargaining chips because they carry a high symbolic value in political negotiations. And in Kabul today, you'll see street names that are named after Abraham Lincoln, or street names that are called Azadi, like freedom. And then you also have street names that are named after war criminals. (laughs) And I think what Ali very um, beautifully discusses is how we can think about critical toponymy 
as a way of understanding the reproduction of ideological discourses in the spaces of everyday urban experiences. And what he tries to get us to understand is this ideological dissonance by doing what seems like a, a surface survey of just street names, right? Similarly, I think we're not sure in this restoration project, like what actually got restored? Was this a monument to the liberal ideals of an authoritarian leader, Amanullah? Or is it a monument to the conservative preferences of a democratic Islamic state? Those are two very different things. Or are there many other possibilities that are not even being explored? Huma, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me, Rustin. Thank you. And for our listeners, once again, that was Huma Gupta, who just finished her PhD at the Aga Khan Program for Islamic Architecture at MIT, and will be embarking on a journey to the Gulf to be at NYU Abu Dhabi. For our listeners, as usual, if you would like to continue the conversation, please join us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and we'll see you there. Until next time.